Welcome to our 100th episode of Common Ground Berlin, where we delve into important issues that matter to you in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and I want to thank you for listening to our podcast over the years. Hopefully it's fun and informative for you as it is for us. Today, senior producer Dina El-Sayed and I will discuss key moments in our Common Ground Berlin journey, which began in September 2020. Back then, we were not only on air, but also the flagship show of KCRW Berlin, 104.1 FM. It wasn't an easy start, as our first episode was in front of a live audience during the height of COVID, and our ethnically and politically diverse guests were rather passionate about our premier topic, who is a real Berliner. Dina describes what it was like. The premiere was supposed to be our first encounter with our listeners, both on the airwaves and as podcast listeners. So it really felt like a test and we really had to leave a mark. It was also exciting because this was the moment when all of the brainstorming and the ideas that we talked about and contemplated the previous months would come to life. And it was scary because the test was meant to take place live during COVID in the middle of a lot of restrictions. So there was a lot of troubleshooting. How do we make it work? Eventually, we pulled off a live event that was also live streamed. And it was so satisfying to see how the guests and Soraya and the audience were all engaged and and everybody was having a good time, even though it was a difficult conversation at some point. Our original plan for the show was to host difficult but civil on-air conversations on a wide range of current affairs, including anti-Semitism, whether Airbnb rentals should be allowed here given the growing housing shortage, and the widespread cancellation of Christmas markets during the pandemic. Then, three months after our premiere, the radio station unexpectedly shut down for good. Berlin was off the air, and for a few nerve-wracking weeks, we weren't sure we could even continue in any format, even as a podcast. But a European Recovery Program grant and many partners and great friends saved the day. Key among them is Anna Kuchenbecker, who has guided us and devoted untold hours to helping us succeed. The German Marshall Fund, Goethe Institute, and Checkpoint Charlie Foundation have also been instrumental to our success as have our wonderful Common Ground Berlin board members and advisors. But there is another founder who I would like to talk about, former U.S. Ambassador to Germany, John Kornblum. John passed away last month, and our Common Ground Berlin family offers our deepest condolences to his loved ones. His insight and efforts were appreciated by so many here. Those of us who knew John marveled at his tenacity, like when he helped Ronald Reagan's advance team figure out where the former president should give his iconic Open This Gate speech. John described the moment in our episode An American Botschaft. The biggest job was to make sure that everybody agreed that he could stand in front of the Brandenburg Gate, which was in East Berlin. Some may remember, it was right on the border between 
mit der Mitte und mit der Schattenburg. Aber Berlin Senat war sehr much against it. The German Foreign Ministry was very much against it. They sent delegations to Washington to ask them not to put him there because everyone thought it would be a provocation. Even some of my friends in the State Department were against it. How did Ronald Reagan feel about it? Well, I don't know. I didn't obviously didn't ask him, but I was talking with his advance people. And in the end, this is a true story, uh, they came for one last time, and after all these delegations from Germany, they came one last time, maybe about two months before the speech was given, and uh, I figured out the best thing I can do is sell this to them on TV angles. So I took them to two or three other spots where he could speak, which were very boring spots, and then I took them about, oh, um, 300 meters or so away from the spot where the speaking stand would be, And I said, and I literally did like I'd seen on television, I, I said, do this, look here, look at the camera and see what this would look like at the TV camera. And they did that. And there was a guy called Bud Haeckel, who was a very good guy, who was the head of the events group there. And he said, that's it. There's no other space. I don't care what they say. He's going to stand right there. And so that was it. And uh, the argument that the, Berlin authorities in particular used against this was that security would be very bad there. But I, the, the other important thing you need to remember about that situation was that under the occupation rules of that time, the three allies were in charge of the police. And so in this case, it was in the British sector, so the British were in charge of it. So we just said to the police, could you guarantee the security? And they said, of course we can't. And there was nothing that the Berlin mayor could say about this because we were in charge of the police. So we drew up the security perimeter. We had lots of uh, bulletproof glass around the president. We had uh, 40,000 Berliners come to see it. To this day, the mayor of that time denies that there were 40,000. He said there were only 15,000 then. And they were all from the American uh, military. It's not true at all. We had 40,000 people from the city of Berlin. And I know many people today who come up to me and say, you know, I was standing there. But what I'm leading up to is that this was not exactly a friendly event between us and the uh, people in Berlin and the uh, authorities in Berlin. And this is part of the factor, uh, the way that German-American relations have gone over the past 75 years. And that is that every once in a while we have to push very hard because the German authorities, and it's perfectly natural, I'm not even being critical about it, um, are very cautious. And so it was this, if you will, this American um, energy and this American disruptive behavior, which actually led to several important uh, aspects of the post-war period. But I think this speech in Berlin was the most dramatic. It's the one that which is now gone down in history. It's now considered one of the great speeches of the 20th century, et cetera, et cetera. But from my point of view, it was a job, and it was a very difficult job to make sure that it was all pulled off. Like John, Common Ground Berlin tries to foster connections within Berlin, within Germany, and transatlantically. That has been tackling not only controversy and current affairs, but culture. And those episodes with music-infused storytelling are among my personal favorites, like this one on German humor. And yes, Germans are funny. Lebanese German comedian Carmen Schreim sets the stage. 
I mean, when you said that the podcast is gonna be about German humor, I was like, okay, that's gonna be a short one. You know, like, <laughs> what I'm gonna say? I can understand that. I also spoke with German comedian Christian Scholter-Loh, who splits his time between London and Berlin. So I guess we are funny, but we have a reputation for not being funny. So that can work in our favor because we can surprise people. If a German is funny on a mediocre level, they are still funnier than everybody else is expecting them to be. So that's good. There's even a German Institute for Humor. Part of its mission is to show that Germans do have a sense of humor. But founder Eva Ullmann says the fact there is humor in Germany doesn't mean her countrymen always know what to do with it. We are very good in making things quite perfect and on time and be reliable. Humor, on the other hand, is sometimes not reliable. It's a surprise. It comes from where you don't expect it. So I have the feeling that countries like Spain or French or, or countries in South America who are a little bit more relaxed with time and not on time are sometimes better with humor. Based in Leipzig, her academy teaches Germans across the country to employ humor in their daily lives. In business and in daily life or in family life, for me, humor has several advantages. Um, it's attracting attention and it can de-escalate uh, conflict. And that's, I think, probably the most uh, two important things. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're in a business meeting or in school or if you have a conflict with your partner, with your child um, or with, a, with a, a customer or a colleague. One such recent training was at a multi-purpose hall in the western town of Hennef, where she coached workers at the local youth welfare department. In one exercise, Ullmann tells them to break off in pairs and use exaggerated gestures and words to describe their hobbies to each other and make them funny. She says in her case it would be swimming three hours a day, to which her partner might quip, you swim so much you could work, make phone calls and do your reading while you're at it. Ullmann adds, yeah, that and sex and a massage, too. <laughs> Learning to be funny may be something new for many Germans, but watching comedy is something they've done for centuries. A lot of German humor is farcical. Karl Valentin, who is sometimes called Germany's Charlie Chaplin, brought that kind of absurdist humor to the screen in 1912. One skit he did in 1934 is called In the Record Store. Valentin walks into the shop and asks the clerk whether she has any new records. She asks him what kind. He replies, round and black. Their nonsensical exchange escalates from there. But with the advent of the Third Reich, German humor largely disappeared. The Nazis cracked down on anyone who dared to mock them. They arrested Jewish entertainers like Max Ehrlich, Kurt Geron, and Dora Gerson and sent them to the Nazi death camps. Many non-Jewish German comedians refused to perform during the Hitler era in protest or out of fear. There wasn't much to laugh about in Germany after World War II either, as Germans struggled to rebuild their country and reinvent themselves. Telling a joke back then was a bit like tiptoeing through a minefield. 
German comedians couldn't easily do what good comedians are supposed to do, which is deliver uncomfortable maxims that stop short of being offensive. Comedians in what later became East Germany faced additional hurdles. The German Democratic Republic banned any criticism of communism and socialism, strictly controlling literature and the arts, and forbidding its citizens from consuming Western entertainment. Ullmann explains. In GDR times, uh, most of the uh, comedy programs were censored. So there was a level uh, everybody could laugh about, and there was a a level underneath uh, where you really had to think about. So in my point of view, it made the humor and the comedy universe um, more complex. It's never possible to forbid uh, humor. It doesn't matter how difficult a culture or a country gets mostly humor finds its ways. So also in the GDR times. The German Institute for Humor founder says like many East Germans, her family ignored the GDR taboos on comedy. I grew up in GDR times, so I remember my dad buying secretly uh, comedians from other countries that we could listen to. So uh, humor in the picture and in the talk was quite important for my family. The reunification of Germany in 1990 ended the bans, and the passage of time has eased German discomfort with jokes about their history. Ullmann says these days, younger Germans are demanding a different approach to humor. First we do the work and then we have the fun. That's changing for now. Uh, younger generations and younger people are expecting fun at work because they're spending so much time at work that they at least wanted uh, that time having fun too. New German trends in humor have emerged, the most significant being live stand-up comedy. It turns out it's not just German stand-up that is popular here, nor are Germans the toughest audience, says Iranian-American comedian and actor Maz Jobrani, who I interviewed on the eve of his first-ever Germany tour in September 2022. In this excerpt, Maz describes the challenges he's faced on the other side of the Atlantic when he tells jokes about certain politicians. I learned as a stand-up during the Trump administration, his fans were crazy rabid. They wouldn't even listen to what you're saying. I originally had my, in my beginning of my tour, I was going to, uh, this is during the Trump era, years, I was going to lean into my criticism of Trump. And I was, and I was doing it. And then I ended up one night at the improv here in LA doing a joke about Trump. And there was some Iranian immigrant who was pro-Trump, and he started yelling, and I started yelling, and the next thing you know, we're yelling at each other. And I look out at the audience, and they're looking at me like, what happened that your show has been derailed? And I was like, this is not good. So that's when I started calling that tour Peaceful Warrior, and I decided I'm going to Tai Chi the next time somebody comes at me with the Trump stuff. And I got really good at it. Like in this YouTube video Maz mentioned earlier. What's that? As a woman. As a woman. I take offense. Okay. At? What you just did, because as a woman, okay, I have a very different opinion than I you. I appreciate you. Thank and you I very am much. A legal, a legal. You're legal. What? Paralegal? A what? I'm a legal immigrant too. Congratulations. Fantastic. Namaste. However, Russell is not legal. <laughs> it's okay. Calm down. I love you. Thank you. Okay. Okay, I hear you. That's fine. That's okay. Relax, guys. Relax. It's okay. Listen, that's fine. That's my whole point. We can talk about it. That's fine. Send me a tweet or something or a Facebook message. We have a conversation. I'm serious. What's that? Back at you. Back at me. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. I love you. Thank you to the 
grade level. Yes. I totally okay. enjoyed you Please. until you chose okay. to attack Trump. That's what I just was talking about. Oh, come on, relax. Please, calm down, calm down. You guys, relax, you know, everybody relax. Listen, just calm down, it's almost done. I only have like two more Trump jokes and then we'll be done. I swear to God, I swear to God. I'm being honest, I'm being, I swear. Humor isn't the only cultural topic we tackle. We've poured over Germany's more than five century old purity law and whether it impedes German beer creativity and charged into a wildly popular but unlikely sport here in Germany, American football. Dina's first episode of narrative storytelling on Common Ground Berlin was also about culture, specifically a special local tradition. What's in a name? Or to be more precise, in a street name? We use them every day on applications, invitations, or other correspondence. We share them with family and friends, with officials, with taxi drivers. But street names are more than a simple address. They tell us stories about people, places, and time. They can inspire, or sadden, or sometimes anger. It's triggering in a very good way. And that was amazing for me. I was like, oh, wow, you know, and I could connect. So it's a little jarring then, I think, to see it in Berlin and to think that it's being celebrated is also honestly irritating. Their responses are to street names in my city, which was once divided and struggling with its identity. While the wall in Berlin is long gone, street names still denote the demarcation. You can often tell whether you are in the former East or West by looking at the width of the letters on the signs. Even the punctuation here is by design. So in Berlin, there are strict rules, and one of the rules says that if the place is named after a person, if it's a surname, then you write uh, the name of the street with the co-joined Straße or Platz as one word. That's Berlin author, blogger and wanderer Beata Kontratsche-Krampe. So, for example, Schleiermacherstraße is spelled as one word. And then you look at Senefelder Platz and you see it's like one word, but there's also a place called Senefeld. This is how you actually recognize. Um, so you know that Senefelder Platz was named after Alois Senefeld because it's spelled as one word. If you go to Feuerbachstraße, then you also see whether it's a place called Feuerbach or whether it's a person. It's a person because it's spelled as one word. Kontatje Krampe, who hails from Poland, says her obsession with street names in the German capital began 14 years ago, after the birth of her eldest son. Which means that you go for long walks during the day, pushing the pram. And that's exactly what I did. And then when you have time and you have to sort of spend time uh, moving around, you start noticing things that you would probably normally not pay attention to because you would be in a hurry. So I wasn't in a hurry. And um, I started paying attention to things like, for example, gaps in the street. Um, like there is a building missing. So why is the building missing? And I paid attention to the street names as well. Her blog, Kreuzbergt, Berlin Companion, unlocks the secrets of those signs and more. I had two more children, twins in the meantime, so there was even more pram pushing. Yeah, and I discovered um, wonderful things about Berlin, and uh, it's a permanent rabbit hole for me. For her, the street names in her former neighborhood of Kreuzberg serve as a bridge to the past. The area around the Victoria Park 
um, the streets were have something to do with the wars of liberation, so wars against Napoleon, a big, big thing in Prussian history. And um, um, so you have those streets like Großbeerenstraße, um, Katzbachstraße, and so on and so on. And um, Meringdam used to be called Belalionstraße, which I think is the most beautiful name. <laughs> I have a particular sort of fondness for the Belalionstraße. Belalions, or the Beautiful Alliance, is how the Prussians came to describe the Battle of Waterloo, which saw the final defeat of Napoleon in 1815. Tina explains why the episode was important to her. Street Names was one of the episodes that we produced in collaboration with the Goethe Institute, part of a series called The Big Ponder. And it was very exciting to me because it was a chance to zoom out from week to week current affairs and really, really delve into a very nerdy topic that I love. I also really enjoyed finding the perfect interview partners who knew every single thing about every single question I had to ask. Dina and I are not the only ones who come up with topics for Common Ground Berlin. We've been very fortunate to work with some amazing interns who, as Dina notes, have helped us do some of our best episodes. I'm so grateful that we have the opportunity to work with interns on this show. And we've been so lucky to also have some really passionate and budding radio journalists joining us. One intern, Abby Meganson, came up with an episode topic that was wild, which is Germany's obsession with Native American imagery. It was a difficult episode because the two positions on both ends of the table, virtually, were pretty much impossible to reconcile. But I thought Abby did a great job. And I thought it was a moment of success for her and, and all of us that she was able to pull off the exact kind of civil dialogue and civil discourse that, that is the core idea behind Common Ground Berlin. Abby's guests were Renee Watchman, who is the co-author of Indian Enthusiasm, which examines indigenous people's responses to the German obsession with American Indians, and Florian Schleburg, who chairs the Karl May Gesellschaft, a group dedicated to the author who fueled that obsession. Renee, what are your thoughts on Karl May and some of his works? Again, I don't like to center Karl May or his works, so um, I find it all just problematic. I mean, again, so many people, as uh, Florian has said, that are influenced, but my experience uh, with that readership is one that is, I guess, no longer, ex no longer is probably a, an, an overgeneralization, but at least my students here in Kiel and, um, and other places, like the 30 and under crowd, you know, uh, don't read Karl May, but they do see that their parents maybe have, but of course their grandparents did. And so, you know, just the fact that Florian gave you the example of railroads. Well, we have to understand, you know, why railroads were being developed. I mean, the displacement of lands, of indigenous people's lands is completely problematic. And it was a colonial and capitalist system that not only displaced indigenous land, but, you know, they went to any means in reality to uh, acquire that land. So, you know, we were talking deaths of indigenous peoples, cultural genocide of indigenous peoples, et cetera, and so forth. And the fact that um, Karl May decked out uh, Vinutu as a Sioux or a Plains uh, indigenous person uh, from a time, you know, that's pre-reservation, quote unquote, is, um, you know, it's all in inaccurate. So it's very pie in the sky type of reading. It's hard to read. I mean, I read Karl May in, in translation, and that was harder to read. I don't know if it was a poor translation, but, you know, when you have your supposed hero, you know, sounding like a um, an illiterate gruff who ends everything he says with uff, uff, it's quite insulting. It's quite diminishing of us as um, indigenous peoples and all of our 
brilliant diversity that we are and were, I suppose. Can I say something on this? Yes, yes, please. I would have to emphasize here that Winnetou is not uh, a savage. Yeah? Uh, Winnetou does undergo a development in the works of Karl May, but uh, in the end, he's practically the perfect gentleman. Actually, the subtitle of my first by novel. whose standards, though? These are, you know, Christian Obviously. standards. Yeah, you are right. You're right. But that's the only way. Well, well, let's, I, I want to, Renee, I want to give Florida a chance to just complete a statement and then you can definitely respond to it. Obviously, Kalmai was unable to describe Native American reality. Uh, his Wild West is an imaginary world, obviously, but he does address all those topics you just mentioned, Renee. So he addresses the genocide, he addresses the exploitation of natural resources, he addresses the fact that the red men, as he still called them, were victim to a huge injustice, a systemic uh, injustice by the uh, Yankee civilization. So he was not, of course, a scholarly a student of Native American culture. His sources were very dubious, yeah? and much of what he imagines has very little to do with reality. But what he did do is that he almost single-handedly created a sympathetic interest yeah, in Native American culture for us, and that does make us sensitive to the issues you just mentioned, which, of course, we have an entirely different view on uh, one, and a half, one and a half centuries later. Okay, and Renee, would you, would you like to respond to that comment? Responding to um, the comment that he was a perfect man, and I'm think, and I, and I said, by whose standards? I mean, he's being measured by a Christian ethic and a Christian measuring stick, and I think we're incommensurable. So I don't buy that because, again, you have to understand the history of. Um, well, let's look at today's news. If you go to today's news, you're seeing that residential schools are unearthing, unearthing rather, several mass graves which should you know ring volumes in in this context over here of children and how did those children get there well because of the church it was definitely an uncomfortable afternoon in our studio my hat is off to abby for gracefully moderating the tough conversation which became one of our most popular episodes Another popular episode, so popular in fact, that we've done several episodes on the same topic, is about getting German citizenship. And who better to talk about how that works than Common Ground Berlin team members, some of whom are in the middle of the process. Citizenship. Where do I start? I guess this is a personal topic to me as I'm one of the many thousands of people who are in the queue to get their citizenship applications processed in Germany. I'm sure Sarai saw how engaged I was behind the recording gear because at some point she turned the mic over to me. Which I did. I asked her whether she'd been able to get an appointment. Um, I was not able to get an appointment in the infamous Panko office, which apparently has only two employees who work part-time. So I've been eligible to apply for the German citizenship since two years ago, and I've been trying to get an appointment for two years, and I failed. And before I gave up, I hired a lawyer, and this was the only way for me to actually have my application process, which to me is very unfair because it draws a line between who can afford a lawyer and who cannot afford a lawyer. And um, to me, that's a very clear demarcation that I'm very bitter about. Thanks for joining us on our trip down Common Ground Berlin's memory lane. 100 episodes later, 
I'm so overwhelmed by the depth and the range of topics that we got the chance to cover and the diversity of our guests and the insights that they had to bring. I'm very proud that I got to be part of the team behind this podcast and bringing information that is otherwise inaccessible to a lot of people who live here but do not have access to other outlets that provide this information and this variety of guests and voices. I'm really looking forward to what comes next. So what do we at Common Ground Berlin have in store this year? First up is our Goethe Institute collaboration on Franz Kafka, which you won't want to miss next week. In the spring, I will take you along on my Camino, a journey undertaken by nearly a half million people around the globe in 2023, and will keep you up to date on the continuing saga of German dual citizenship. You may also notice what we're hoping will be more listener-friendly changes to our format, Nevertheless, this may be our last year as our grant will end. We'll do our best not to let that happen, but we need your help to boost our listenership. So spread the word about Common Ground Berlin. If you would like to donate to our nonprofit podcast, go to commongroundberlin.com to find out how. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and our producer is Dina El Sayed. Thanks again for listening to our anniversary episode, which was produced by Axel Scheele. Our social media editor is Nur Chabelsi. The instrumental pieces called A Thought and Gentle Chase are by Poddington Bear. Rodolfo's Death is by Livio Amato. Latin is by Croander, and Lemoncholy is by TKP. Common Ground Berlin's theme music is Mono Lilu by Foro in the Dark. Our podcast is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And our partners are Goethe Institute, the Checkpoint Charlie Foundation, and German Marshall Fund of the United States. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and X at CG Berlin Podcast. <laughs>